This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. This is episode 45 of Play-By-Play Cast, the podcast about play-by-play guys for play-by-play guys, hosted by a play-by-play guy. My name is Joel Godet. I'm the voice of the Ball State Cardinals, and I am currently walking around outside at one in the morning in Cheektowaga, New York, outside a Holiday Inn Express, recording this very open. If you've ever seen the movie uh, That Awkward Moment, it's one of my favorite rom-coms starring Zac Efron. Uh, The movie opens, it's 4 a.m., I'm sitting at a park bench, and it's freezing. That's basically what I feel like right now. It's 1 a.m., I'm walking around a hotel, and I'm freezing. It's about 45 degrees outside. We'll get to that here in a second. Uh, Bob Rathman is our guest, though. He is the voice of the Atlanta Hawks, kind enough to sit down with me when Atlanta came through Indianapolis last week to close out their NBA regular season. We met downtown at the Hawks Hotel on the back end of a back-to-back, nonetheless, and recorded this podcast uh, and a lot of really interesting topics about his career, his process, his preparation, uh, and his uh, approach to this industry that we'll touch on. As always, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at PXPCast. My handle is at Joel Godet. That's at J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can hit me up via email as well. That's J-G-O-D-E-T-T at BSU for Ball State University at BSU dot E-D-U. All right. So I'm here in Cheektowaga, New York. It's one in the morning. I'm cold. I can see Buffalo Niagara International Airport uh, through the hazy, foggy night sky. The lights are just beyond the parking lot. I I do believe that's what that is over that way. Another hotel to our right. Empty parking lot around me right now. I'm looking at the pool. Uh, I figured it would be a good idea to record this podcast outside because, well, it's one in the morning and I could hear people walking through the hallways of the hotel. I don't. I'm a fairly loud broadcaster. I, I don't... No, people would have appreciated me doing this for the 15-minute span it takes to record this open. So here we are, uh, sacrificing for the good of the product outside in the cold. Uh, Why am I here? That's a good question. Uh, Ball State Baseball is playing at Buffalo this weekend for the final time ever. Buffalo cut its baseball program about a month ago. It cut four sport programs. Baseball amongst it, rowing was amongst it, men's soccer, there's one more that I'll know come broadcast time tomorrow. But uh, Buffalo cut its baseball program, so this is the last time Ball State and Buffalo will ever play on a baseball diamond. And from a travel perspective, that's, I, I, I think, okay with me. I love the Buffalo road trip in the Mid-American Conference. I'm an East Coast guy. I went to Syracuse. We've talked about that on the podcast. So anytime I get to come to Buffalo, it's one of my favorite trips in the MAC because I, I come closer to home. A lot of times players will ask me, hey, are we going close to where you lived? Not, not particularly, uh, but I, I, feel like, I feel like I'm closer to the East Coast now. Uh, they have Tully's Restaurants in Buffalo, 
which if you're a New York native or an upstate New York native, Tully's is a, a local restaurant up here. It's kind of like a local Applebee's. And they have a baked ziti dish that I used to live for when I was in college. So anytime I get to come through Buffalo and can get myself to a Tully's uh, or an Anchor Bar or a Duff's or any of those kind of local wing haunts, uh, it's a good road trip for me. But I like it when it's football or basketball because it's a charter flight. And (laughs) you're here in an hour and a half. In baseball, it's like an old minor league baseball road trip. And that's one of the things that... You really don't experience a lot in the Mid-American Conference. When I left the Myrtle Beach Pelicans in 2012, I kind of had kissed long minor league baseball bus trips behind, uh, left those behind. Our longest road trip in the MAC is about five hours, max. And that's from Muncie, Indiana, Ball State, to Kent State or Akron. About five hours. That's on the high side, too. You can probably do it in four and a half. Uh, and a lot of trips in the league are, are, are day trips if you need them to be. Uh, I go to Eastern Michigan for, we've talked about it on the podcast, gymnastics or wrestling, day of sometimes. Uh, for football, we travel separate from the team. So if we're playing Toledo or if we're playing Bowling Green, uh, if we're playing Miami, Ohio, certainly, that's like an hour and 45 minutes, uh, we'll just hop in a car day of and, and make that trek. But Buffalo is an entirely different story. We got on the bus today at 1.30 in the afternoon. At about 1.45, we pulled over because the TVs weren't working, so we had to get that fixed. Uh, We didn't, but after a half an hour, we continued driving. Uh, Eventually, we did get the TVs fixed. Uh, We stopped for dinner at about 6.45, got back on the bus at around 8.15, and at about midnight, rolled into our hotel, the Holiday Inn Express, here in Cheektowaga. So that is a long long bus ride that uh, that I certainly will not miss uh, when, when the Cardinals don't have to come back to Buffalo. I will miss an opportunity to get additional Tullys, but that is certainly a bus ride I will not miss. Uh, did get some work done. Did see Daddy's Home for the first time once we got the movies working, the Will Ferrell movie. Uh, that was entertaining. Laughed a couple times. Uh, I'm doing the Mac Tennis semifinals, women's tennis semifinals on ESPN3 next week. Uh, So I got a chance to do a lot of prep for that. Uh, I have no idea how I'm going to pronounce those names, folks. Uh, But I did get a lot of tennis prep done, so I guess the the, the bus ride was good for that. Uh, anyway, on to our guest, uh, Bob Rathbun, voice of the Atlanta Hawks. We did this uh, conversation, taped this conversation in an empty ballroom at the team hotel when they came to Indianapolis last week. And topics that we touched on ranged from uh, his appreciation for radio, uh, his preparation, the way he minds his stories, the way he tells stories on the air, uh, and then we get into some career arcs for him. And uh, not necessarily replacing Ernie Harwell when he first got his break in Major League Baseball, but certainly stepping into the booth the year after Ernie Harwell in Detroit before Ernie then eventually came back. We talk a little bit about that. Uh, we talk about then going to Atlanta, becoming the voice in Atlanta, and being accepted by a new community and kind of becoming synonymous with that community over the years, uh, working with the Braves and working with the Hawks. We talk about his first break into broadcasting when he was 12 years old, calling American Legion Ball with none other than Marty Brenneman. That was before Marty Brenneman was Marty Brenneman. Uh, we'll talk about other 
interesting run-ins with guys he had growing up in North Carolina and in Salisbury, North Carolina, which is where the now National Sports Media Association is based out of. It's where they have their annual conference. So as a kid, Bob Rathbun got exposed to a lot of very high-level broadcasters uh, and has some interesting stories as far as that is concerned. We talk about the Arena uh, League and the the starting of the Arena League uh, and quite literally the building of the Arena League and how that worked on television because Bob Rathbun had that package. Uh, So we get into a lot of different uh, interesting quirks of Bob's career. Where we started, though, was broadcasting back-to-backs in the NBA because that's where I caught Bob. Uh, his Hawks had played, I think, Tuesday night and then Wednesday night in Indianapolis. Tuesday night in Atlanta, Wednesday night in Indianapolis. They had gotten into Indy at like 2 in the morning, and then Bob met me at the team hotel to tape this podcast at like 10 a.m. on Wednesday. So I caught him on very little sleep with a lot of preparation still to do. Uh, But where we begin is uh, with what a back-to-back is like and how he approaches them. Uh, You always hear about players not liking back-to-backs, what's it like as a broadcaster? Having to prep for two games on back-to-back nights and make sure you get all your ducks in a row. That's where we begin with Bob Rathbun here on episode 45 of the Play-By-Play cast. Get a little done on the plane and then dive in. I I got up earlier this morning before we're recording this and and, uh, started to work on our stuff. Uh, One of the big challenges, I think, is you want to do the same preparation for each game, uh, but the constraints of time sometimes don't allow that. But we're fortunate in the NBA that at least on a back-to-back and we're traveling, there's no shoot-around. You know, the team, as we walk past to this meeting room where we're recording this, uh, they were setting up for their scouting film and breakfast, etc. So for me, that helps. Um, so I don't have to leave the hotel. So I can just buckle down when I get in the room and I can just blow it out until mid-afternoon. But I've got a checklist of about 15 things that I need to update uh, and go through uh, before I really feel confident. And however long that takes, you know, you work on short sleep on a back-to-back, just like the players. But I feel better. I mean, I don't know if I'll use it on the air, but uh, I feel more confident uh, when I've got all the boxes checked of all the things that I need to look at. Are there things that people wouldn't necessarily consider do you take a step back and think well graphically is there a way we can show something like this or things that you might normally want to prepare a couple of days in advance where maybe you're a little bit more rushed outside of just being able to read up on some things no i wouldn't say i delve into the graphics end of it too much uh we've got people to do that for us um good question though um if there's something that i want uh i'll ask for it uh, as we record this, we're getting ready for the last game of the season. So I was talking to the graphics guy on a plane last night, and I said, I want you to build something that we could show the other four games that affect the Pacers and, and the seedings in the East, and there's four others that will run concurrently to our game tonight. And I said, you can come up with that, and then we could just refresh it uh, as the evening goes on to keep up on how the uh, other game's are going. So that's a kind of a specialty thing, and he's got to spend some time building that because that's not a normal request. Uh, but, no, I don't really spend a lot of time. I'll get a sheet from him when he gets to the truck, and I'll have all the, uh, the graphics list, and then I can add, subtract, stuff like that. What are production meetings like for you guys when you're talking about local NBA television? Uh, what do you guys talk about? How do you sit down? How do you plan out the types of things you want to do and the types of things you want to 
the types of ways that you want to tell stories that are unique to, to that particular medium? You know, we really don't have a production, formal production meeting as such. When you're going like we're going, and, and we've been doing this since early October, uh, we do most of it by email. Uh, and by uh, and we'll meet every home we meet every game but we don't go into an elaborate production meeting like you would do for say a football game or a you know a one-off specialty type game Uh, so we're sort of in that routine and uh, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning and I sent it this morning probably around eight o'clock was to my producer I said these this is my early thinking about what we should do in our pregame show we have one hit the studio does the bulk of it but we have one hit here and then what we want to do in the open and the stuff that we want to feature during a game and i'll just give her a little list and then she'll talk to neek and she'll talk to the graphics people but i'm the one that gets the ball rolling with her first and uh, and jill is our producer uh, the only female producer in the nba and we're proud of that and um and she'll start the process and then before she leaves for the truck all of us on the 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 announcers and the crew we will get a detailed rundown of everything that's going to go in the show but to sit down we don't really have a formal production meeting because time just doesn't allow for it is it do you like it better than you talk about the the national kind of one-off uh what are the differences when you do a a larger scale production or where you do something that is you're doing it 82 times, uh, so it's it's got a little bit more of a different flow. Great question. Uh, I've done both, and um, I prefer the team. Uh, always have, even when I was working for CBS and, and ESPN. It's uh, each sport's different. Uh, football to me is the biggest challenge. Uh, you know, when I was when I do football now, um, and even in the day when I was doing the national games. Uh, starting over from scratch every Sunday with two new teams and two new conferences is tough. And I'm not going to kid you. It is like a final exam uh, that you've got just really three days to get ready for. Uh, because by the time you get the info, I mean, Sunday's sort of a decompression day. But by the time you start rolling Sunday night, you've only got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to get it all down because the phone calls start, you know, the, the talk to the coordinators and all that stuff and trying to distill all this info down. And I think that's where announcers get criticized by the fandom of those teams because they live it, breathe it 365 days a year. And we parachute in, uh, do the game. You know, you might mispronounce a name. You got the score wrong and everybody's in a, up in arms. But And that's the the part that I hate the most about those one-off games. The nice part about it is it's generally going to be a pretty big game. Sure. And so you see the, the best of the best. But I prefer the daily grind. Uh, I did baseball for two decades and you know, hundred. we did 100, when I was in Detroit, 182 radio baseball games uh, with the Tigers. So I enjoy the daily grind. And I think the, uh, the challenge of that is to keep it fresh, to keep it interesting. You know, what will my fans back in Atlanta uh, be expecting tonight to come up with unique stories and takes and all that? And fortunately, uh, that's not too hard for me. I, I'm a basketball junkie. Uh, I love talking to the guys, the coaches. 
And that's where I get my best stuff because they'll mention something about somebody and that will, oh, well, you played with him and you did that. And, and it leads to just sort of a natural flow. And then I work with a Hall of Famer who's got a ton of stories um, and he can grouse about the old days, you know. And uh, so I, I prefer the, the daily grind, but they both have their unique challenges. I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of, of what you do, but if I can go, I want to make a couple of pit stops on your career arc, if I can. Sure. Uh, and I've read a lot about you getting into this when you were 12 years old, and that Marty right. Brenneman was right. your American Legion broadcast yep, partner. That's right. Uh, what do you remember about Marty Brenneman at that point? And uh, I guess, did you know then <laughs> that he'd be what he is now? Yeah, you know, it's funny you mention that, because I've thought often about this, but I was 12 years old, and Marty was... I don't know. I think he's 12 years older than I am. So he was 23, 24, and just starting uh, his career. He had gone to uh, to North Carolina and graduated, and he worked at a TV station in High Point, North Carolina, and hated it. And so he came to Salisbury to sell airtime and broadcast the games. And uh, it was he was just starting out, and. As he was doing the games, we knew he was good. You could hear that. But we didn't really think, you know, from Salisbury, North Carolina, you know. And he got his break going back to Virginia to do the Squires and the Tides and, and then later, uh, obviously, Cincinnati. Um, but it wasn't until later that you say, boy, this guy is, is really talented and really good. And... Uh, then you had a, a little bit deeper appreciation. But when you're a 12-year-old kid, you sit back, he's, you know. that. And the other part of that for me and all of us who grew up, because there were three of us that left that little radio station to become big league announcers, um, we just assumed that this is how it's done. So we didn't have to have mentors like you would reach out today we were all in this little town together at the same time. And so it was just sort of a, a natural progression. We weren't awed by the talent or awed by, you know, what he would go on to become. And I, I, another factor is that the National Sportscasters and Sportswriters is in our hometown. So from the time I was 16, I've been around these guys. I was on a transportation committee. I would go down to Charlotte and pick these guys up. And I'd have Lindsey Nelson and Kurt Gowdy and Chris Schenkel and Bray Scott and all these great announcers in the backseat of this car talking for 45 minutes to an hour as we drove them up to the hotel. So I never was, like, awed by these people, you know. Um, it was just like they were great guys. And they were fun to be around, and they were very helpful. Uh, I remember asking Lindsey Nelson, I said, well, I'd like to do this one day, Mr. Nelson. And he said, Robert, if you don't have any talent— Dress funny. Now, if you people who are too young to know the name Lindsey Nelson, uh, this guy wore the most outlandish. You thought Craig Sager wore outlandish clothes. Well, Lindsey Nelson did it 50 years ago, and uh, and that's why the, where the line came from. But a great broadcaster and, and a great friend and uh, just a wonderful person. Uh, but that's sort of the, the background on that. It's a... Uh, you know, yeah, we knew he was good, but we had no idea it was Marty, you know, Marty Brenneman. You know, it was Marty. And, you know, he was like the rest of us. So um, that that part was neat. I was going to ask about the uh, the then NSSA or now NSMA right, uh, right. car rides. And 
you, you beat me to the punch there. But what else do you remember about having those guys in the back seat and driving them? Uh, and, and outside of Lindsey Nelson, are there other things that still stick with you to this day about things that were told to you that maybe, I know you had already kind of decided you wanted to do this, but that spurred you to say, you know what, this is where I'm going. Yeah, yeah it just seemed um, a natural progression. I, I think the one thing that they, to this day, I think all, all the guys do, and I try to when asked, uh, is to help the young broadcasters. You know, they were they had such a helping hand. Uh, I mean, I was a kid, you know, uh, back then. But they, I remember, like, the seminars they had. Um, uh, Lincoln Mercury used to have a sports panel that would uh, would talk. And, and Arnold Palmer and all these grades would come into our little town. And uh, But they were real people, and they were willing to help. And I think that was probably my biggest takeaway. I can't remember now, you know, conversations from 200 years ago with Ray Scott. But I do remember... Uh, just how nice they were and how professional they were. I mean, you were talking about, uh, and even on the writing side, you know, Red Smith, Jim Murray. Murray was a national sports writer like 19 times in a row, 24 times in a row, something ridiculous. And when you go back now and read it, you know why. Because this is one of the great writers of all time. And he's sitting in Salisbury, you know. Uh, Will Grimsley with the AP, and all of them were so professional and broadcasting mattered and i think just to get off on one quick tangent sure. uh, that's missing today when i was growing up it was a big deal to be on the radio it was an even bigger deal to be on television but to be a, just in a little town with a microphone was a big deal and i remember these guys at the station and, and others just imprinting on my brain when you throw that switch to open that microphone have something good to say anybody and that's sort of the way it's evolved with multimedia and everybody with a phone's a broadcaster these days i think we've lost some of that specialness that anybody and i mean anybody can get on the air on sports talk radio and rip a coach and rip a player. That is the easiest thing to do in this business. We have so many people in our industry who've never been with a team, have never been in that locker room, don't feel the pain of losing and what these guys go through, that they don't have an appreciation because they're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to shock jock type uh, approach. Uh, and there's too much of that. There's too much of it online, blogs, uh, podcasts, just rip anybody. You know, that's not the way this is supposed to be. And I know I'm a dinosaur. I know I'm old school. I got that. But I think there are some tenets to broadcasting and to writing uh, that are important. Um, you can see it on the news side. You know, when the president of the United States has to come out, uh, regardless of political affiliation, but the president of the United States has to come out and say, what you wrote is factually wrong, uh, and stop a press conference for that. that. That is like, to me, how can you do that? How can you prepare a story for national consumption that has had no basis in fact? And I think a lot of that's gotten lost over the years, and I'm, that makes me sad. How do we get that back, particularly on our side of things? Discipline, 
I think uh, the biggest part of this job, whether you're in the studio or covering a game, is to be there. Uh, very few take the time to come to games, even less to come to practice. You've got to establish a relationship with these players and coaches and executives to know what you're talking about. I am not an expert on basketball at all. What I have learned has come from others. What I've been able to do is write it down and then regurgitate it at the right time. Right? I never played. I never coached. I wouldn't know which end of the clipboard to hold. So I think we need to have a better respect for the game and the people who play it. Does that mean everybody's perfect? No. Does that mean they don't make mistakes? No. But I was taught one of those lessons early. Criticize the performance, but not the performer. And there's a big difference. I want to come back to some different spots in your career, but I want to branch off because you're, you're touching on another spot I wanted to go with you. Uh-huh. In terms of... Uh, when it comes to basketball in particular, I am no expert. Uh, I stopped playing when my dad was my coach, and I was in fifth grade, and I didn't play. Uh, so I figured that was a sign. Uh, and I said, I remember walking up to one of our assistant coaches before a game this year, and I said, hey, Grunk, uh, I'm no basketball expert, and I think the one thing that hurts me most is that while I use David, my analyst, to obviously tell what's going on, I feel like I don't have the same depth of knowledge to be able to talk on par with him. Uh, how do I do it better? Uh, so what's your approach been over the years to being able to have an understanding? And uh, what are the questions that you ask to get the information that you can then regurgitate oh, in, the right, in the right way? I ask. I mean, I am with these coaches 24-7. And the Hawks are kind enough that they include me. Uh, a lot of staffs won't. Uh, but we're very fortunate here. Bud, I'm the only broadcaster allowed to practice, which is fantastic for me because it's a classroom. This guy is unbelievable. I know here at Indy, uh, Brad Stevens sort of has that uh, um, air about him, and uh, Bud is cut from the same cloth. Uh, the guy is a coaching savant. And the staff, which has been together, you know, we've, we've sent two head coaches out of the big leagues, um, is the same. Yeah. And they take the time to explain to me if there's something I don't know. You know, I know our offense. I know our defense. I know what our coverages are. So when they tell me we're going to start in center field and with the posts and red and, you know, I know what's coming. So that helps. Um, Remind me a funny story about a third base coach. We'll get a chance about baseball. But I think that's the big thing. They allow me access to synergy so I can can look at all the advanced stats. I can watch any game. they give me the thumbnail scouting reports on the opponents uh, so I'll know their tendencies. Uh, and all of that is through developing relationships with our coaches. And I think the coaches will recognize the broadcaster if there's a genuine willingness to want to learn the game and learn what's going on. But because I think it gives the broadcaster another side to share with their audience. Like, you know, they come down, they turn it over. Ah, what's going on, right? But now when you know what they've been practicing, it, it does make a difference. I think sure. it makes a, a big difference. So that's just, I love it. I love it. I mean, with that synergy thing, you could never be bored if you're a basketball fan. You watch any game in the world, international, college, D-League, NBA, and I'll just pop it on. And, like, when we get done with this, when I head back to the room, as I start my prep, I'll have the Indiana game on from Monday going 
And, you know, Chris might say something that, oh, let me look at that play, and I'll back it up and watch it. And, and so I think that's kind of where it comes from. But the willingness to be there, the willingness to ask questions, show interest, um, I think are the major keys in developing that relationship. This is dangerous because I don't know uh, where this could go, but yeah. let me put you on the spot. Uh, you guys are playing Indiana tonight as we record this. What's the kind of thing that you would sit down and ask today to glean the information that you wanted to know in a basketball sense? Well, this this day is unique. I mean, this is the 82nd game. Our minds are on Washington <laughs> uh, to get ready for the playoffs on Sunday. Uh, but the one thing that I'll ask them tonight is – a, who's playing, because I think we're probably going to sit our starters. But B, of the second and third unit, uh, who are the guys that you want to play and play together? What's giving you the most results? And then this past weekend, those guys, the second and third unit guys, were instrumental in beating Cleveland in back-to-back games. So – once I get that info as to who's playing, then I can take it back to the producer and I'll say, okay, you know, Millsap's going to sit, Howard's going to sit, Bazemore's going to sit. So here's who's going to play, here's who's going to start, and here's who's going to come in. And then we could go back to Cleveland and pull plays and show, hey, this second unit got it done, the third unit got it done against LeBron and Kyrie and those people. So that that's where that will take me today. But generally speaking – I want to know what they're thinking. You know, where do you think we can go to exploit a matchup? Where do you think we need to be good? Uh, What what will you change? How will you allocate the minutes? Those kinds of things. Because in the NBA, there's so many possessions. The shot clock's so short. Uh, This game moves so fast, and you got it. Most of the coaching in this league is on the fly. Uh, You do in terms of adjustments. You know, they'll make some at halftime, but you got to. That's why Bud's so good, because you can just make it on the turn on a dime and say, "Okay, we're switching our pick and roll coverage out of a timeout." A couple of years ago, I asked him. We were playing the Clippers, who are really good, on the second of a back-to-back. This is in the sixty-win season, two years ago, and I said, "Bud, I said, look, we played four games in five nights. We're coming home. We're playing the Clippers. We've had no shoot around, no practice. We haven't talked about the Clippers." How in the world do you get them ready? And he said, well, Bob, he said, we're very blessed that I've got a group of guys that have a high, really high basketball IQ and that they know our system so well, offensively and defensively, I can go and tell them one time, we're going to do this, this, and this tonight. Put it on the board in the pregame meeting, and they can go out and execute it. Now you can't do that in high school and college. I mean, you got to have like that's like a whole year, right? But we did it like in five minutes, and and that's the difference, you know, with sure. these this skill level. But those are the kinds of things that that you get in, in getting ready for a game like this. Let me rewind back uh, and let me jump to baseball if we can as well, yeah. because I want to take you. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were 37 years old and still in the minors wanting to get that crack at the major league level and I think you'd gone on five auditions before you finally got that Detroit Tigers job what are you thinking when you're in your late 30s as a guy who wants to be a major league broadcaster uh, do you ever have those doubts that start to creep into your mind that say am I going to get there and how do I get there at this point I would do two things differently if I could go back I would value the networking aspect of this job a lot more uh, and I would 
instead of being frustrated, uh, I would be fascinated. Um, bloom where you're planted. You know, a lot of nights when I was doing those AAA games, we were on awful stations, and I knew nobody was listening. But I was wrong. Somebody was listening. And you owe it to that listener, if it's just one person, uh, to give it your best shot. Oh, I wish I could go back and do it over. Oh, man, there's so much I'd do differently. Uh, I'd be a much better storyteller. I wouldn't worry about stats. I would get to know people. But I'd also network better. Uh, I thought, I mean, remember, this is, you know, 100 years ago. But I used to think, because Marty, again, you talked about the Brenneman influence. You know, Marty just did it, and they hired him. You know, he's good, and they hired him. So I figured, well, if anybody's good, they'll, you'll get hired, right? I mean, that's a natural, sure. you know, A equals B. Be good, get noticed, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just keep your nose clean, work hard, and everybody's, well, he's, he's great. Let's get him. And, of course, that didn't happen and uh, for a lot of reasons. And uh, I, as I look back at it now, it was all me. It wasn't them. It was me. I didn't do a good enough job. I didn't do a good enough job networking, getting to know people. Because this business, as you'll find and probably have found, friends hire friends. And the bigger your network, the more people you – and I don't want to talk about brown nose. And I'm, I'm just talking about establishing relationships with people particularly as you all come up together, you know, your age group, those peers are going to be the next program director, the next GM, the next blah, blah, blah. Uh, and as you rise through the ranks together, don't make any enemies, uh, network well, and you'll be fine. But the big thing I would say to young Bob is bloom where you're planted. You know, make tonight's Hawks Pacers broadcast the best you can do make tomorrow's Ball State game the best it can be, and then let the chips fall where they may. You said you wish you told more stories and told less stats, too. Yep. Um, explain that a little bit. I think because of my background, I kept stats uh, for Marty. I kept stats for Duke and Wake on their radio networks because the voice of those two teams lived in Salisbury. So he would just throw me in the backs of his car. And that's how I got, you know, to do ACC basketball when I was a junior in high school, just working the stats. And when you're in the minor leagues, again, this is in 1980, the radio broadcaster was responsible for doing the team stats. Okay. Uh, we didn't have all this stuff you got today. I had to sit there and grind it out every day because I had to prepare it for me. I had to prepare it for the other radio guy. And then the manager, you know, we wouldn't get all this stuff. I mean, it, for you guys your age, you know, you think this is just second. We used to have to grind it out every day. So I would spend almost all morning just preparing the stats and so when you do it all day, naturally, that's kind of what comes out of your mouth uh, when, when, the, when the game starts. Because um, you, you're spending so much time grinding the numbers, you don't take time to talk to people. Um, so that's what I meant by the statistics. But I would say it today. I've got in my room at this hotel enough stats to choke a horse. 99.9% mean nothing to my audience. They mean, mean something to me, but they don't mean anything to the audience. But what means something is, what can I tell them about Paul Millsap tonight? What can I tell them about Dwight Howard? They may not know. Those, that's what I'm talking about. Sure. Make it interesting 
to your audience. And baseball is the zenith of doing that. You know, I'm confined to the 24-second shot clock. But in baseball, you know, I mean, that is, especially on the radio, that's all it is, is storytelling. You know, and I wish I could go back and do that again. I think I'd be a lot better baseball announcer. From a statistical standpoint, um, and in college we have Ken Palm, and you can right. you can go nuts. And and our coach at Ball State is very much a, a stats guy, and and lives by a lot of what those stats tell him. So they become really relevant to what we do. How do you look at what's out there and decide what is worthwhile? That being said, and and then making that digestible if you think it's important. Well, stats are always looking backward, and uh, the game is being played in the future. So remember that the past does not predict the future. Uh, I have a real struggle with the analytics um, because who was the guy who came up with the calculation? You know, it's kind of like the wizard behind the curtain, right? Uh, So you've got this formula, but who came up with the formula? And what does that mean? And I'll give you an example. I can take 10 guys tonight a snapshot in the first quarter. And let's say our point guard, uh, Dennis Schroeder, hits a jump shot over Jeff Teague. And I can put those same 10 guys on the floor in the fourth quarter and have Dennis take the same shot. Now, analytically, it will look identical. Okay? But anybody that knows basketball knows that that shot in the first quarter with no pressure Versus that same shot in the fourth quarter, when your team's down by eight and you've missed your last five, there's a little more nerves involved, a little more pressure in making that shot. And that's what the analytic people can't discern. Um, So I take that analytic stuff with kind of a grain of salt. There are some numbers, I think, um, in baseball, too, that people understand. Like if I tell you the guy averages 20 points a game, or the guy hits 300. I think you got a pretty good idea in your mind. This guy's pretty good, right? But if I get into, you know... Um, war. If, yeah, war, or an effective field goal percentage, and, and all this stuff, the minutia, that, yeah, may have meaning to the coaches and stuff, but to your audience, I, I believe that 99% of my people just, it's like their eyes glaze over, you know? It's like... What does that mean about the outcome of today's game? How is that affecting us right now? Uh, Where they shoot the ball on the floor and all that stuff. And for radio, it's like zero value, right? In basketball, how in the world are you going to have time to explain what that means? You know, there's six baskets while you're trying to explain what's going on. So I, I take sort of a dim view uh, and but, and I, listen, I, my nose is in the books all day, but I take a dim view off of just spewing numbers for numbers' sake. You know, uh, like baseball, we have just lost it in, in terms of storytelling. You know, who's the guy that everybody holds as the greatest of the great? Vin. And did he spend a lot of time with statistics? No, he's telling you about the time he, the guy, forget this, last year, cut the head off the rattlesnake. And exactly. yeah. And what, did you remember any of those stats? No. no. But you remember that story. And that's the essence of what we do. And 
the baseball, we don't tell stories anymore, particularly on TV. And I'm, I'm not happy with the way we do baseball on TV anymore. There's a crawl going on in the bottom. There's a score bug over here. Here's a, in this corner, there's a, where the pitch goes. And, and all the, where am I supposed to look? But if you watch Vinny in those Dodger games, it's the hitter, the pitcher, and the director and the producer following Vinny all around the ballpark as he tells the stories. And we've gotten away from that. So I, I take a dim view of that, all the statistical presentation. It, it's, it's good if you got the time to explain it, but most people, they don't remember that stuff. They remember the stories, you know. They remember uh, a story about Dwight Howard as a kid growing up in Atlanta, you know, and, and not having enough money to get a good seat and sit in the top row of the Omni because that's where his youth squad tickets were and falling in love with the Hawks. You know, those are the kinds of things that people remember. Loaded question. Uh, what's the right or the best way? And I don't even know if there is a right or best way. Um, but when it comes to telling stories, how do you approach it to weave it in the best way? Because obviously there's still the game going on and make it most effective and most memorable. Timing. That is the greatest thing. I, I, I spoke to Vinny a couple of times and he said, you know, the thing is you've got to know when to use a story. You may have the greatest story in the world, but if the time and place are not right, uh, you can't really force it in. You know, don't start telling stories with two outs in an inning. You know, all those, those little ground rules. But I think the, the big thing is to, and again, this comes, I think, probably from more experience than anything else, but you kind of get the rhythm of the game. You know, basketball is an ebb and flow. Um, and so you've got to pick the right time when there's not something important happening on the court. But I think timing is the big thing. And to tell it in a way that's not too cumbersome. You know, make it a nice, clean story. Uh, you can start it, tell it, and get out. And that's a particular challenge of basketball uh, because the game's so fast. Much more uh, easy in baseball. Sure. How do you get the information for that, too? Obviously, it's talking to people, which is almost a lost art in, in some ways nowadays as well. But I even look at it from, from where I'm at. Ball State's best player last year is a guy named Franco House. Uh, he's obviously got class. He also became a father. Um, so I always, I always tried to be respectful of Franco's time because of the amount of stuff he had on his plate and the amount of commitments and the amount of people pulling him in different directions. And I would always hate to say, like, hey, Frank, you got 15 minutes, 20 minutes after practice so I can get your x story on this or that and you try to pluck where you can um how do you strike the balance of being able to to really delve into some topics with guys and, and i i'm sure you run into that at the nba level too uh most certainly right. uh being able to respect their time but also develop relationships with them um and learn their stories so that you can tell those stories college is is tougher because of just what you said uh they're they're being handled uh, by the coach and by the PR, you know, the SID office, but talk to Franco's other people, uh, siblings, mom, dad, if it applies, high school coach, teammates. These are all great resources. And, and the one thing that you can do, and I do because I still do college basketball, is that now with the Internet and, and the access to newspapers and feature stories, uh, you can get some pretty good nuggets uh, that others have delved into uh, that will save you some time. But I think it's just the, um, it's the odd time. It's the, uh, the five minutes at shoot-around. Um, 
you know, on the bus, getting a bite to eat after a game. You know, when you're with a team on the road. I, I, the road time to me is, is the best because when we're home, everybody's scattered and they're, they've got their lives to live. But we're all together on the road. And that's where uh, you can get some good stuff. And I, t- I get the best stories from the players, you know, and the coaches. That's where my best stuff comes from. When I get on the bus, I take the early bus over. Jose Calderon will sit right behind me. Now, he's only been with us a month or so. But what a fascinating guy, you know, 35 years old, seen it all, done it all, played 8 million games uh, from Spain and played in Toronto for a long time. But just to talk to him, you know, hey, what'd you see? Oh, I and that wonderful accent. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. And you just kind of get to know the guys. But when you establish those relationships and those friendships, they know you're not coming after them. So they open up, you know, a little tougher for some of the guys. But, you know, I'll find something like Torian Prince, you know, his backstory is like incredible. But I'll find something that he did at Baylor and I'll say, hey, you know, did you see what Yale did the other day? Just to, you know, kid him or, you know, just something. And then they start talking about some sort of reference exactly, from exactly yeah. exactly and i think that's that's how you get them i don't go around with a notebook and you know a recorder and all this stuff just talk to them and uh and the experience of knowing what to use and what not to use uh you're not going to embarrass anybody or or use something that they don't want out there but they'll give you good stuff it's great yeah. and I, I one thing that i've found too i go back and i cross-reference all these guys for the years that they played, who their coach was, and where everybody else was that same year. And it just gives me a little bit, oh, so Torian was at Baylor the same time Embiid was at Kansas. Let me go look and see if they played against each other. And I'll say, hey, TP, come here. The game in Lawrence, your junior year, you know, you guys lost at the buzzer, or you know, I'm not making this stuff up, but sure. but it, oh, he's, he's like, and then he'll give me something. He said, "Oh yeah, man, Embiid had this play, and you know, I blocked his shot and all that, whatever." So as we play Philly that night, and maybe maybe Prince and Embiid go up against each other, I can say during a replay or a dead ball, I said, you know, it was just a couple of years ago that these guys were going head-to-head in the, in the Big 12. So it, it's stuff like that that I try to categorize and, and use for that right moment. I want to dive into some baseball. Um, and sure. I, don't, I don't want to take too much more of your time because I, I do want to get you to your, to your game prep. Um, but I want to go into the beginning of your, your Major League Baseball career, if I can. And I had read that that was a, obviously probably one of the tougher times in oh your career God. when you were with Detroit. But the part I want to get to is – Stepping into a booth when a legend leaves it, like Ernie Hartwell. Don't do it. Um, well, and that's what I was curious about. And it's, it's, it's uh, everybody's spot is a little different. I got to Ball State. The guy who had left had been here for 56 years. Um, you know, somebody's going to replace Bob Harris at Duke this next year, and that's going to be after 41 years. And there's a beloved nature to all of that. Um, how do you, how do you do it if you yeah. do it? Um, and, you know, I always think if, if I could go back five years and do it again, I would do some things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about, you know, and, and obviously there's a, a ton of different circumstances, but if you say now in your career, gosh, if I could go back to that time in the mid-90s and, and do it again, maybe I would have done this a little bit differently. Uh, I wish I had the guts to say no okay. uh, back then. 
because I, like everybody else, sat in the fall of 1991 and said, what are they thinking in Detroit? How? I mean, Paul Carey retired, but Ernie, it's like, what are you doing? And I, I remember saying to my wife, man, I'd hate to be the guy that. <laughs> and then three months later, you know, I was Rick Riz was the number one and uh, and I was the number two and uh, uh, taken really Paul Carey's spot. But the thing that happened to us in Detroit uh, that I hope never happens to anybody, whether it's uh, the fellow with the Dodgers, is Joe Davis is his name. I haven't met him, so I don't know him. But uh, for him or for anybody that has to fill in for Bob Harris or whatever, is that you have the commitment of the people who hired you. Uh, when Rick and I got to Detroit, we were hired by basically Bo Schembechler and the radio station. And that was a time of the Tigers' existence when Tom Monahan owned the team. And Mr. Monahan, a month into our first year, sold the team to Mr. Illich. God rest his soul. And uh, everybody that hired us, Bo, the director of broadcasting, uh, director of marketing, all got fired the day Mike Illich took over. So there we are. I mean, the day they made the announcement, uh, the ownership change, we were in Minnesota, and we had gone to Sparky's suite, and it was me and Rick, uh, Sparky, Dick Trzewski, his third base coach, and his bench coach, Billy Consolo, in Sparky's suite, on a, huddled around a speakerphone, listening to the WJR broadcast of the events at Tiger Stadium. And we're just looking at each other like, what is going to be next? You know, Sparky lasted, you know, a couple more years, but not long after that. He was gone with the lockout after 94, 95. And, uh, that was probably the thing. We may still be there today had there not been an ownership change, right? But uh, we walked into an environment, and not many people are going to ever do this. You're going to walk into an environment in a town like Detroit that's blue collar and, and clings to its media stars and clings to its sports stars, uh, probably like no other city because um, there's not much else, you know, with the, with the automobile industry and the straits that it was back then a very hostile media environment and the newspapers were vicious uh, they didn't want they didn't understand they didn't know what was going on behind the scenes they didn't care uh, all they knew was that Ernie told them that he was getting fired and that that was it and so they ganged up on us pretty bad uh, I went to interview and there's cameras waiting for me getting off the plane at Metro Airport. I was like, what in the world? I was like, I'm doing three innings of a baseball game, people. Relax. But it was uh, it was a different environment, obviously, in, in 1992. God, it's forever ago. And um, so I don't think anybody's really going to walk into what we walked into. Sure. And we made it three years, you know, and, and Ernie came back uh, and joined us for a year, uh, which in hindsight uh, – probably not the right thing to do for any of us because it just brought it all back after we sat through the 94 was a strike year and so we got to the end of august and we were done and then uh, you know like a few days before christmas you know we got the axe and uh, uh the station had signed a new rights fee a rights deal with the wings and the tigers and part of the deal was that we were gone so um 
And that's fine. You know, everybody in this business, you stay in it long enough, things like this happen. But I don't know that anybody uh, will walk into a situation like that ever again. What are you thinking to yourself when that run comes to an end and you go, where do I go from here? I got to get a job, you know. (laughs) Uh, I had one more year. Uh, that was one nice thing that Bo did for us before he left. We had three-year contracts with an option for the fourth year. And when he got wind of the ownership change, he said to Alice Sloan, who was longtime secretary, I mean, this is like Tiger history, man, that nobody knows about. Uh, he said, where are the boys' contracts? And, and now remember, this is April of our first season. We'd done like 10 games. And Alice said, well, God, Bo, I don't know where they are. Uh, I think they're at ABC in New York because Jr. was an O and O, and still is with ABC. He said, "I want them on my desk in the morning." Okay. He gets the contracts. He rips them in half. He said, "Take out the fourth year option, guarantee the fourth year, and have it executed by this afternoon." And he calls us in because we had a game at night. And he calls us in like at 3 o'clock. He said, you know, Bo Schembechler. Are you old enough to remember Bo? I, I mean, I've, I know. I've heard the plenty of stories. Right. But, I, yeah. I know, all yeah. true. All true. And so Bo said, boys, I just got your contracts. He said, uh, we're going to uh, get rid of that fourth year and guarantee it. That'll make it a little tougher on him to fire you. <laughs> the next day, he was gone. How about that? And we had that fourth year, and that's what kept us. You know, I'm sure after the first year, they probably would have given us the heave-ho. But we had, you know, they had to pay us, and they weren't going to do that. Not ABC, heavens. Um, So uh, we stuck it out with Ernie, and then we had the the lockout, which, you know, threw baseball into just, you know, panic city with no World Series. And uh, then I had to get another job. But fortunately, you know, I had kept doing basketball, and a guy that I – had done a lot of games for who was my ACC producer became the um, uh, EP at Sports South in Atlanta. And Tim Brando was doing the Hawks games and he was missing too many games for the team's liking because he was going doing football and all this. And they said, hey, we, we want somebody to do our games. And Craddock, Steve Craddock called me and said, uh, you want to come down to Atlanta? And he said, you can do the Braves. And you can do the Hawks and college sports. and It's a hard sell. Yeah, and right after the Olympics, especially when you're broke and you need a job. And uh, so my wife and I, we, we, worked, we got paid through 95. And then uh, in the summer of 96, right after the Olympics, we moved to Atlanta and been there ever since. How do you become associated with a place like that? Because especially in this industry, uh, people want to have a tie to that. They want to feel like they're connected to whoever is talking to them. Um, and here's a guy who's North Carolina born and raised, works in Virginia, goes to Detroit, winds up in Atlanta. And now people are just kind of, oh, Bob, Atlanta. Right. The, the two are, are intrinsic. How do you how do you do that? Uh, and, and how do you build that relationship? Well, part of it's luck. Uh, part of it is circumstance because Sports South was just getting started. You know, the, the explosion of regional sports TV. And I was on the air every night. I mean, I was doing the Braves. Uh, We had a Wednesday night package. But the Braves then were in the middle of that run where they were winning 14 straight division championships. And so every night was must-see TV. 
I mean, we're doing 10 ratings on a Wednesday night for, you know, a game in San Diego. It's like ridiculous. Uh, so everybody in, in the southeast, not just Atlanta, the southeast is watching. Then I'm doing all the Hawks games, and I'm still doing college football and college basketball. So uh, Tom Pachorek used to do the baseball with me. And he said, you know how you're sitting at home, and you're flipping through the channels, and there's a movie on, and more often than not, Michael Caine is in it. And he said, that's Bob. He said, you, you're flipping through, and it could be a women's game, it could be a men's game, but he's on every night. And I, so that was, a, you know, as big a part of it as anything, because I was just on the air. I was their signature voice. Um, now, obviously, we've got a lot bigger and more sports, and I just am confined to basketball for the most part on our network now. But that's that's just being right place, right time, and there's no design for that. I'm going to do something here and check my sheet before we go any further because I want to see. I don't want to walk out of here and go, oh, I forgot this. So a little on-air production as we go here. I'll leave this in because it's a podcast. Uh, (laughs) uh, I I think I hit on a lot of the things I wanted to get to with you. Um, I did want to ask you about the Arena Bowl, but that's kind of random. Uh, Yeah, because that was the first one, wasn't it? Uh, The very first. I got a call. Because I was, I'd been work, doing some work for ESPN with the NCAA tournament and, and other things, and uh, I got a call, and so we're starting this new thing. Now you got to remember, now this is summer of 1987, and ESPN had virtually no properties. I mean, they had Australian rules football, and they had college football and basketball, but very little of it. They didn't have the NFL, they didn't have baseball at that time. So they're looking for summer programming. Well, I mean, what are you thinking when ESPN calls at that point? Because it's, yeah, it's different than what it was now. Right, yeah, Right. I mean, it was like, oh, this is cool. This network called me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this is cool. But my games had appeared on ESPN, and I had done games for them. So it was just sort of a natural extension. Hey, we've got this new thing. Uh, it's called Arena Football. And uh, we think it can be our big summertime blockbuster fill-in. Indoor football, nets, the whole bit. I mean, Okay. I said, uh, well, great. Uh, why don't you send me a rule book and media guides and all that stuff, and I'll get started. And uh, there was no rule book. There is no media guide. I said, what are you talking about? He said, no, this is kind of a startup. Like from, <laughs> I said, I've done the minor leagues, man. I don't have to want to go back to it. So Lee Corso was my partner. And this is like the last, one of the last years that he did games. We did the fall together, uh, real college football, but we did this in the summer. So I called Corso, and he's working, you know, for the pencil company, for Dixon Ticonderoga down in Orlando. And I said, Lee, I said, what have we gotten ourselves into? And we talked, and neither of us knew one thing about what they were doing. The league owned all five teams. And I said to him, I said, why don't we go watch the practice game before we had a week before the opener let's go to rockford illinois and we'll sit with the owner and watch this and kind of get the hang of it great so me the producer um and lee go i can't even remember who played <laughs> but i'm watching a game and i said well let's get a handle on the rules that's number one you know i'm a big rules guy so let's get let's get this thing down and the head of the referees and the owner are sitting in front of us 
And they're tearing up the rule book as they go, as the game unfolds. I can't have that. Can't do this. Got to do this. Keep in mind, that. they've already played a season because this is no, the championship, right? No, this is the first. This is before they ever played the first oh, game. This is the very first game. It's the very first game. Okay. This is the very first game. And I'm saying, of course, oh, this is the end of our careers. We, there is no way we're going to survive this because ESPN is now, they're pumping it up. And USA Today used to have a radio TV column. You know, three days a week, Rudy yeah. Marsky and all these people, and, and they're trumpeting this is the big thing. So we go to uh, Denver and Chicago's the opener. And I've got no nothing. So I had to call every school where these guys played to get some background on them, where they've been. And it's the summertime. At a college SID office, nobody's there. We're all on vacation. Everybody's on vacation, and everything's in a file somewhere. There's nothing. There's no computers. There's no, nothing online. So I, the typical phone call was, hi. Then I had five minutes to explain what it was we were doing. Really? Okay. And who's this guy? I said, well, Joe Schmo. He says he played at Arkansas State in, you know, 1985. Let me go look. Phone down, you hear click, 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 walk to the file, open the file folder, come back, picks up the phone. This is every call, every call. He's, he was on a scout team. You know, he was a walk-on. He was a freshman. He was a walk-on. Uh, he never played in a varsity game, and that's all I got on him. He went to, you know, Smith High School in thanks. And I had to go through this for every player. Now, fortunately, there was only, you know, like – maybe 12 to 15 guys on a team and there's only five teams it's just like a leslie nielsen movie oh it was right out of that i mean it's you know and don't call me shirley <laughs> and so we we get to chicago and i and we still don't have a rule book and i said well let's just talk to the referee i said if this thing goes overtime they've talked about having a weird overtime rule i said let's get that down at least uh just in case and we'll just wing it from there okay so I go down, and I talk to the referee, Red Parkinson. I'll never forget this. I said, Red, i got to know what the overtime rule is. Got you covered. And he explains to me. I write it down verbatim. I walk from that meeting to the production truck. I go to the graphics person. I said, this is it. If we go to overtime, put this full screen on the air because here's how it's going. Unbeknownst to us, he tells the owner, this guy named Jim Foster, who owned the league, yeah, I just told ESPN what the overtime rule was. And Foster says, oh, no, that's not right. But nobody told us. Of course, the game goes overtime. i got to tell you one funny call. The first play, I've, I don't know who, well, Denver maybe, you know, throws a touchdown pass. And this guy, I mean, they're playing on cement, you know, in these arenas. And the guy stretches out and makes this incredible touchdown catch. The first touchdown in arena football history. And Corso says, that was the greatest catch in the history of arena football. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, my God, here we go. ESPN. Now, SportsCenter was still a big deal, you know, as it is today. And they came on at 11 o'clock Eastern time, and they've got all the baseball highlights and all this stuff. And it's still, you know, even then in 87 was the go-to to get your sports. And this game was blocked from 9 to 11 Eastern time. It took three and a half hours. They are pulling their hair out in Bristol because SportsCenter has been delayed an hour and a half with these idiots running around on this 
carpet uh, inside Rosemont Horizon, and the game goes overtime. Now, here's the kicker. So we put up the overtime rule. Of course, it's nothing like that. I said, I have no idea what they're doing. And so Denver, Tim Markham, who was an original coaching legend, as it turned out, they win the game, and we got him mic'd down in the field. I said, Tim, congratulations. You've won the first arena ball game. And, you know, how does it feel and blah, blah, blah. And Tim says, Bob, I think they get the ball back. I don't think it's over yet. <laughs> and that was our first of arena. I mean, we, the stories of how they got players and how they divvied them up. And it was hysterical. It was Mouse Davis was the player personnel director, the legendary Mouse, and uh, oh, we had, it was I, that first game. So now we get the reviews on Monday, right in the in the USA Today, and Rudy didn't write the column. I forget who wrote it that day. It was Michael or Rachel or somebody? But they said, "Well, Arena Football made its debut the other night." But you don't have to worry about it, NFL. This thing will never catch on. He said, even the announcers don't know the rules. <laughs> this is like a 30 for 30 that has to happen. Oh, it, well, it should be. It was classic. On that note, Bob, uh, I've taken double the time I've uh, requested from <laughs> well, you. Good stories. So good stories. I, I greatly appreciate Thank you doing you. it. And uh, thanks for, thanks for uh, taking a flyer on a guy you'd never met and, uh, and let sure. me pick your brain. Well, you remember, like I said, when I was a young fellow coming up, uh, in high school in North Carolina, the greats of the business uh, took time for me, and I'm certainly not a great in the business, but I always wanted to pass on, uh, you know, if, if I can be of any help to anybody that's listening to this or to you, uh, please uh, reach out and let me know, and I'd be happy to. That is Bob Rathbun, the voice of the Atlanta Hawks, here on episode 45 of Play by Playcast. Many thanks go out to him uh, for taking that time. He didn't have to do it, most certainly. Uh, it would have been really easy for him to come in on the back end of a back-to-back in the NBA and say, hey, I'm going to be tired. I don't have a lot of time. I've got prep to do. It's coming down the end of the season. Maybe another time. Um, you know, he's also the voice of the Atlanta Dream, so he's, he's coming back to Indy at some point soon. Uh, he could have pushed it off to another time. He did not. Uh, he, he met me. He gave me more than what we had scheduled for. I told him we'd go a half hour. We wound up spending about an hour and a half together um, on the podcast and then just talking. So my great appreciation uh, to Bob Rathbun for his time and for being here on the podcast. Uh, I was serious about that last note, by the way, with the Arena League. If if somebody out there wants to make a really good Leslie Nielsen movie, like listening to Bob explain the entire way that the Arena League worked that first season, like if you just want to take a step back and think about the movie Airplane, but as a football league, I, it really works. Like, someone can make that happen. Maybe Mel Brooks, if not Leslie Nielsen, but come on. Like, it is out there. That is a softball teed up and ready to be hit over the center field fence. I'm just, I see it in my head. Uh, so, so, so that's where I wanted to, to, to wrap things up. And then the other thing I wanted to point out, too, that stuck with me about this conversation that I had with Bob, and that's really kind of inspiring, is when he talked about the importance of flipping the switch. And what it used to mean to people to be on the radio that when they flipped that switch and they were on air it was a big deal and i think he's right we've gotten to a point where it's not as big a deal anymore 
because anybody can flip the switch or we flip the, the switch so often or we're all on the internet uh, and, and I, it's very easy or we have podcasts let's be honest here I'm standing in a hotel parking lot at one in the morning recording this uh, it's very it's very easy to take for granted the fact that we are able to broadcast to the amount of people we can uh, anytime we want about whatever we want it's not as quote unquote such a big deal anymore uh, and it should be it should be. We should never really take for granted the fact that whatever we're doing, whatever we're calling and whatever we're talking about, somebody out there is willing to listen and is willing to give their time and wants to listen. And if that doesn't energize you and pump you up and fire you up to be in this business, I don't know what does. And to hear Bob talk about it in those terms, just kind of that gets my juices flowing again. Uh, so I'm here in Buffalo. They have no stadium. It's a, I mean, it's a high school field. It's a chain link fence with a, like, a collapsible table that sets up behind it. And I'm fired up to do the series this weekend. Because flipping that switch has to mean something. And I'm excited to make it mean something. Even though I'm going to be broadcasting a game in those circumstances. I can make it count. Uh... I'm fired up for it, and and you keep that in the back of your mind now, uh, it changes your perspective a little bit on on what we're doing as an industry, and and keeps it keeps it important. Make sure to always keep it important because it is to a lot of people. Uh, all right, that'll wrap us up. Uh, we're out of time. They're playing marshmallow, so. We've got to get on out of here. Uh, many thanks again to Bob Rathbun for joining us. Uh, Two-part guest coming up next week. Episodes 46 and 47 will be the same guy. And uh, somebody else I had a chance to catch up with in Indianapolis in person this past week. Uh, the voice of the Durham Bulls, Patrick Keenis, will join us. We'll talk baseball next week. We'll talk the Olympics the week after that. Really good two-part conversation coming up with Pat Keenis that I'm looking forward to. And I'm looking forward to you guys getting a chance to drop in on that as well over the next few weeks hit us up on twitter we're at pxpcast download and subscribe remember to rate review leave some five stars leave some comments as well we always appreciate it and we'll talk to you right back here next week on friday this is play by play cast we're out we're out